everyone. Today we're joined by Blaise Lambert and Tom Armstrong. Tom Armstrong is the CEO of the Cooperative Housing Federation of British Columbia. He has an extensive background in the cooperative housing movement spanning over 30 years. He also holds the position of CEO for Coho Management Services Society and the Community Land Trust Group of Societies in British Columbia. Additionally, he chairs the board of Incasa Financial uh, Inc., which manages an investment fund of over $500 million in assets for the social housing sector in Canada. And, uh, and Blaze has served as a board member of Cooperative Housing International since 2015 and has held the position of treasurer since 2017. He's been involved as a board member of the Confederation of Cooperative Housing in the UK. Uh, and he's a UK's representative organization for cooperative housing since 1997 and has been its chief executive officer since 2014. Additionally, he's a board member of the Cooperative Housing Finance Society, a founding member of community-led homes, and a treasurer of Leicester Bond College, and is also the, uh, the housing sector rep on the board of the International Cooperative Alliance. Blaze is also a qualified trainer with extensive experience providing support and advice to over 100 housing cooperatives and social housing providers in the UK. His areas of expertise include corporate governance, risk management, and financial control. He's the author of several publications, including the Code of Governance for Community-Led Housing and Financing Cooperative and Mutual Housing. So welcome to the two of you, and thank you very much for joining us today. So the, the theme for this podcast came about as a result of a conversation that I had with a, a co-op member whose co-op is facing the end of their lease agreement on university land. The lease won't be renewed, so the co-op is having to look at relocating, which is a harsh reality to have to face, but I guess that's the nature of land leases, and that's probably one of the worst case scenarios. Tom and Blaze both have extensive experience with housing cooperatives and land leases, so we'll try to cover all the bases between the two of them. So let's start with you, Tom. Can you give us a brief overview of your experience with leases, please? Yes, thanks. It's good to be here. Um, good to uh, meet you, Blaze. And I want to start by acknowledging that, that our operations are headquartered in Vancouver, uh, British Columbia. And that is the, um, the traditional uh, and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh First Nations. And I want to acknowledge that we're guests and settlers on this land and engaged in a process of um, uh, active reconciliation that we hope will lead to a more just and equitable partnership uh, in the future. Um, so our experience with leases, interestingly enough, is, is at the front end and the back end of leases and that has meant that it's been a both a positive and a negative uh, experience in, in many ways so back in the days of the um, initial series of federal co-op housing programs um, co-ops were developed with um, with capital and operating financing from canada mortgage and housing corporation and one of the um, techniques that was developed in order to get capital costs uh, down at the front end uh, was to source municipal land, primarily municipal land, but in some cases, uh, crown land and, and pension fund land uh, to provide the initial uh, base for co-op development. This is back in the late 70s, um, early 80s through to the early 90s. And most of those leases in BC, about a third of the co-ops uh, in BC, we, we have 260 plus housing co-ops um, just over, over 15,500 co-op homes. And, and about a third of those co-ops were developed on land, leased primarily from municipalities, but as I said, from also a combination of crown corporations and, and, uh, and pension funds. Most of the leases ran for a 60-year term. Some uh, were as short as 40 years, um, that being the period extending five years beyond the amortization of the financing that was available from CMHC. So now we're in a period where many of those leases are coming to an end. Uh, they've either um, ended or in the next five years they will be ended. And the municipalities who 
who own the land underneath those co-ops, which are now mature communities. Uh, they've been running um, resident-controlled co-op communities for the better part of four decades, um, and in some cases more. Uh, but municipalities are, are seized with the, um, the housing crisis that has really um, characterized the, the BC housing market for the last uh, decade. And they're asking some very challenging questions about what the best use of that land might be uh, going forward. Um, because most of it was developed under quite low density uh, housing schemes uh, that provided um, green space and, and um, ground oriented housing, primarily for families uh, who were moving into the co-ops uh, in the late 70s and early 80s. So there's now a collision uh, of priorities uh, between the co-ops who want to maintain uh, the communities that they have so uh, carefully shepherded uh, for the last 40 years and the municipalities who own the land who want to uh, use it uh, to provide much more housing than is currently situated on the properties uh, to address the growing housing crisis most acutely in Vancouver but but also um, outside Vancouver in the, in the metro uh, areas. Uh, so that's the, the, the back-end challenges, I, I would call it, of, of advocating on behalf of those co-ops and negotiating with um, primarily municipal levels of government uh, to achieve a fair balance between the housing needs of the future and, and the security of tenure of existing residents. So, and in some cases, the land being owned by private interests, it's really been a contest between uh, the, you know, the mission of the landowner to maximize return on the investment and the mission of the co-ops and the co-op housing sector to maximize security of tenure and affordability uh, in the renewal of those leases or the acquisition of those, uh, those properties. So some very challenging circumstances. The flip side of that is that because we've been able to develop uh, our community land trust as an active engine for growth in the co-op housing sector. There have been some very uh, exciting opportunities to partner with municipal levels of government to acquire land on much longer term leases, um, the standard being 99 years, uh, to write down the cost of developing new housing, which is of course a lot more expensive than it was back in the early 80s, and to build out um, hundreds and indeed thousands of new homes uh, for co-op members and, and members of nonprofit housing societies who otherwise would not have access to the kind of homes and amenities that we've been able to uh, generate. So uh, at the same time, a very um, simultaneously, a very positive and negative experience dealing with the back end of the leases to try and protect existing communities and their security of tenure and working with uh, all levels of government to use uh, the leasehold mechanism uh, to develop new homes uh, for new uh, co-op uh, members and, and to expand the stock of affordable housing and to build the asset base of the sector, which has uh, been a critical piece of our long-term growth strategy. So I guess that in, in summary, that's where we find ourselves in a, in a you might say, a love-hate relationship with the notion of leasehold uh, tenure in, in co-op land. Well, it's interesting that you're able to, you know, to use that, that previous uh, I guess uh, the previous application of housing, which was low density, and uh, and knowing that you know that just doesn't fly anymore, and uh, you have to build you know more dense developments, and uh, and at the same time you know meeting the, the housing needs that are required for for the municipalities. Yeah, it's you know of course as an active uh, social purpose real estate developer, we would prefer to own the property. We'd prefer to have title. Uh, because that gives you more leverage but you know a lot, uh, you can mortgage a leasehold interest as, as easily as you can a freehold uh, interest and and that's what we've been been able to do uh, and municipalities simply aren't in the business of giving away land so the the notion of transferring title to the community housing sector is is not on the table as far as the municipal uh, priorities um, stand so you know the leasehold arrangement is um is a compromise between the municipality's desire to maintain their hold on title and our desire to build more affordable housing for our members in the future. Okay, thanks. Well, we'll get back to some of those points uh, a little bit later in our conversation, but I wanted to 
uh, swing back to Blaze to provide us with uh, an overview of of, uh, of your experience with uh, with with co-ops on the, on lease land. Um, thanks very much, Julie, and, and uh, likewise, very pleased to be um, here today speaking about this topic. I would start off by saying that in the UK, the typical model for cooperative housing is is freehold based. So the leasehold model in the UK is, is, is more of a niche situation that has come about in, in a limited no number of circumstances um, for specific reasons. And I'll, I'll speak first of all to, to um, two examples um, where leasehold models have been used in the UK. Um, and then I'll, I'll make some general points as well relating to um, leasehold models here. So, so the, the, the first the first example that I would uh, point to is the Coin Street development on the south bank of the Thames in central London. Um, this is um, a very large uh, regeneration uh, site and a mixed use development. So, so whilst there are four housing cooperatives that have been created as part of the, the overall community development programme that's been there, there's also retail space, office space, art galleries, restaurant on the top floor with very nice riverside views of of the Thames and St Paul's Cathedral, um, community gardens uh, and, and because it's a multi-type development uh, the, the the cooperatives themselves um, have, have, have been engaged and entered into leasehold arrangements there because they, they, they clearly don't own the entire site but they have a, a relationship so that development works on the basis that a development trust, Coin Street Community Builders, owns the freehold. They grant a 125-year lease down to a secondary cooperative called Coin Street uh, Secondary, and then that grants subsidiary leases down to the four neighbourhood cooperatives. Um, in the UK, we have a, an accounting principle that states that if a lease is granted on residential property for any period longer than seven years, the asset transfers to the balance sheet of the leasee. In other words, were the, the individual co-ops in that, in that Coin Street example to be granted a lease longer than seven years, the asset would go onto their balance sheet, which would fundamentally undermine the financing model that had been put in place uh, to, to enable the overall development. So therefore, because in the specifics of that circumstance, the, the, the development trust needed to be able to secure debt against the whole site and its activities. It, it entered into and, and, and developed this, uh, this three-stage lease model. Um, the leases that are issued to the individual co-ops are actually five years in length. They don't issue to the full seven-year maximum term for a short lease. So they issue for five years um, and those five-year leases are renewed periodically um, as the terms come towards an end. Um, so that's the, the first major example of a, of a, a single scheme in the UK that's, that's based on a, a two-tier lease model, a long, a long lease and then a short, and then short lease uh, subleases. The, the other example that I point to is, is, is Red Rock, Redditch, uh, Redditch Cooperative Homes. Um, Redditch Cooperative Homes is a joint uh, venture uh, between Redditch Borough Council, which is the local authority in that part of the West Midlands near Birmingham, and Green Square Accord Housing Association. And it is Green Square Accord who bring in the development finance and, and build the schemes. And, and then similar to Coin Street, they have entered into a long lease arrangement with a, a secondary co-op called Redditch Cooperative Homes. And, and Redditch Cooperative Homes then enters into rolling seven-year leases with six neighbourhood co-ops um, on the ground. And so they've taken the same type of, 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 of two-stage lease model, but rather than issuing a five-year fixed-term short-term lease, they've issued rolling seven-year um, short-term leases in, in that situation. But, but in both examples, the co-ops themselves have short-term leases and therefore um, alongside the short-term lease comes the short-term security for the co-ops themselves and for the residents that live in those co-ops, um, which creates its own issues, which you know, maybe we can unpack as, as we go along. 
Um, I'd, I'd say a couple of more broad points. There, there are a number of uh, co-ops in the UK that are operating under, under leasehold arrangements where they have residential property that sits over the top of retail and commercial space. Again, this is fairly typical in parts of central London, uh, where again, the freehold title will be held by um, various um, uh, land landlords and landowners who then grant uh, commercial leases on the shop space and residential leases on the space above. Um, I suppose, you know, there, there is an issue here of the difference between um, these type of mixed use developments where, where the lease has to be issued as a, as a matter of practicality and the sort of operational leases that there are for management purposes and financing purposes in the Coin Street and, and, and the Redditch examples. We also in the UK have a significant number of, of organisations that have been established by leaseholders themselves in residential developments. So many commercial developments um, are undertaken by developers and they sell the properties on 125 year leases to individuals. They're essentially homeowners, but, but long lease homeowners rather than freehold homeowners. We have a piece of legislation in the UK called the Leasehold Enfranchisement Act, which gives individual leaseholders the right to collectively form organisations with other leaseholders in their building and to buy out the freehold of the uh, the entire building itself in, in a company or cooperative structure. And there are um, uh, several hundred of these types of leasehold enfranchisement organisations that have established where leaseholders um, have um, set up these organisations basically to, to, to buy their, their um, uh, freeholders out. I think there's, you know, two other things that I just referenced quickly. Um, so firstly, uh, mortgageability and, and term of lease. Um, certainly here in the UK, lenders like to, to lend on multiple um, uh, 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 numbers relating to, to, to the length of the mortgage. So for example, if you are looking to take a mortgage out as a co-op for 25 or 30 years, a lender is gonna to wanna to see at least three, maybe four times the length of that in terms of the lease. So a 50 year lease, you're not gonna secure mortgage finance against if you're looking for that mortgage finance for 25 or 30 years. So even with long leases of 125 years, which are, which are the most common form of lease here in the UK, as, the, as the, the, the term of that lease comes down, so the mortgageability gets affected, and, and, and that's an issue um, uh, that, that, that uh, is, is, is relevant. And, and also, finally, I'd just reference um, uh, the, the example in, of Switzerland as well, um, where in Switzerland it's fairly common um, for public authorities to dispose of, of land and assets to cooperative and community benefit organisations. Um, but dispose of that land on the basis of, of long lease arrangements where essentially the, 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 the public bodies retain the freehold and grant 125 year leases, which certainly is, is not the norm here in the UK, but, 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 but very much so is, is the, the model that operates in Switzerland and as I understand it, some other parts of Europe as well. So quite, thank you, Blaise, uh, quite a different model than, uh, than what, uh, the, what Tom, uh, described over in uh, in British Columbia. <laughs> yeah, the financing uh, terms caught my attention there. The um, the lenders in in Canada will will look for a lease term that exceeds the full amortization of any financing by at least five years. So that's not very restrictive. Um, although, as you point out, uh, the further you get uh, into the amortization of the um, of the leasehold interest, uh, it becomes more difficult for a co-op to finance capital repairs to renew the, the home. So, you know, if you have a 40 year lease with a municipality and you find yourself 30 years into the lease, but now you need to reinvest in a building that in some respects might be coming to the end of its useful life or require a significant reinvestment uh, with 10 years left in a lease term. Uh, you can only finance uh, something that you can fully amortize over five years because of that five-year hangover. So that's restricting the ability of co-ops to uh, to maintain uh, their homes uh, to a standard that's appropriate for the residents. And of course, the the um, they attract some criticism uh, for that. Even though the the lease 
constrains their ability to make the investment they would otherwise be perfectly happy to make. Uh, other uh, commentators will point to the condition of the housing and say, look, uh, co-ops can't be trusted to, uh, uh, to, to govern or manage the long-term uh, stewardship of the asset. So it's a bit of a, bit of a catch-22 for the co-ops that are coming to the end of those lease terms. And is it, I mean, is it a challenge in, in, in Canada to renew leases, to, to roll forward a, a, another term of 40 years? Is, is that, a, is there, is that a, a, an issue that you're, you, yourself and, and, and other organizations are confronted with then as a reality? Absolutely, uh, especially uh, because predominantly the, the holders of, the, um, of, of title are municipal governments. And of course, the housing market in 2023 is very different uh, from the housing market in 1980. Uh, and they have different goals. They may even have different, um, they might imagine different uses uh, for the land. So instead of a, a purely uh, multi-unit residential development, they might see some, uh, they might be attracted to the idea of a mixed use development that includes um, retail shops, uh, childcare centers, even potentially schools. Uh, so there's, a, as I said before, there's a direct collision now between what the municipalities perceive as the broader interests of the community and what co-ops uh, perceive to be their interest in long-term security of tenure. I mean, we don't have that issue because uh, because local authorities to, to organizations don't don't um, <clears throat> don't don't get involved in that type of lease arrangement. Where we do have that type of situation relate, relates to um, our, our individual home ownership market where where individuals have purchased leasehold properties from local authorities under our right to buy. Um, those individuals get, get the, the, those leases for 125 years, but the local authorities, you know, will routinely renew, again, because they're aware of, of the, the issue of mortgageability. And once you get down to 75, 80 years on, on those sorts of leases, mortgage companies are, are more uh, reluctant uh, to, to offer mortgages to individuals. So the local authorities are quite happy to extend the terms back up to 125 years. Um, but it sounds that as if you're operating in a much more challenging environment um, in, in terms of those relationships with, with those public bodies as, as essentially the, the head freeholders. So um, I, I can imagine that's um, causing a lot of difficulties. Yeah, uh, the notion of a 125 year lease here would, would just be unheard of. The, the longest we've been able to achieve is 99. And that's because um, the cost of building housing at a level of affordability that would serve, you know, a broad cohort of the population is it just means that you, you need the, um, the ability to, you need a high uh, loan value. Uh, so a 99 year lease here can be mortgaged at 95% of the freehold value of the land, which is what you need to get, you know, decent housing into the ground. But I'm curious about the, the right to buy in, in um, so how is the price set uh, to close the deal on a purchase like that? Um, uh, well, in, in the first place, you start off with what is the existing use valuation of, of the property. So, yeah, we have we have different valuation methodologies. There's an open market valuation. In other words, what would the property be worth were it on the open market and an existing use valuation, which says, actually, this is this is currently a social housing property in the local authority housing sector. So it's valued on the basis of its rental yield, its net rental yield over a 25 year cycle. But then also two discounts are applied to that valuation. Firstly, a discount that is the right to buy discount in itself, which at various times since Margaret Thatcher introduced the right to buy in the, the early 1980s has gone up and down as different governments have either favoured the right to buy or not favoured the right to buy. So that, that right to buy discount has flexed. And then there's also a discount because essentially the resident is a sitting tenant. So it's not that it's not as if the, the 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 local authority could sell that flat to somebody else. The only person it can sell that flat to is the person that's living in that flat. So there's a second discount applied there. So right to buy properties um, have been extremely affordable for the sitting tenant purchasing them. Hmm. Within three years, they can then be sold into the open market. 
So all of, the, yeah. all of the value actually is captured and has been captured by the initial purchaser. Um, and um, the right to buy is a, is a, is, is a policy in the UK that, that triggers a, a, a lot of emotive discussion on, on all sides of our, our political spectrum. There are some people that are very supportive of it and some people that are very opposed to it. Um, but, uh, but yes, that's, that's how uh, the, the properties themselves are valued. Um, and, uh, and, and then, as I say, um, beyond that, those, those leaseholders, um, because that's essentially what they are, they have the enfranchisement rights in the same way that leaseholders in, 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 in private sector developer developed uh, blocks, of, blocks of properties and blocks of flats have. So, so again, those leaseholders in theory could enfranchise their leases and buy the local authority out then as the freeholder of the building. Um, so, so that leasehold enfranchisement applies in that public setting as well as in the private sector setting as well. Interesting. It, it is true that that uh, leaseholders and tenants uh, in the UK and Europe have um, have much more a more robust set of rights and entitlements than uh, than you would find in in North America. Um, but we do experience the same argument between different methods of appraisal um, with municipal governments as they try to extract more. Uh, revenue from existing co-ops uh, in order to renew leases. Co-ops would prefer uh, that the land be valued uh, based on its current use, which is mixed income uh, affordable housing. And the municipalities would prefer that the value be set based on highest and best use, uh, as if a, a developer was going to come in and, and, uh, and redevelop the property to uh, its full density potential. Which again is, is quite a challenging trade-off between two different positions there isn't it whereas again we're mm. we're, we're we're much more um, straightforward by the sounds of it in terms of you know these mm. are the rules that will apply to this type of uh, valuation of this type of land purpose rather than um, uh, the, the, the the residential stock essentially being valued on the basis of notionally what it could be turned into as a, as a different economic activity which you know, if, yeah. you, if you look at something like many of our members in central London would give a completely different valuation um, yeah. to, to, to land that they're purchasing, uh, but also to, 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 the, to the stock that they have. And, um, and I can imagine some very interesting discussions that, that many of my freehold owning cooperatives uh, members in central London would be having. Um, were they able to, uh, to, 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 to realize a different valuation from selling their properties, so to say, to a commercial developer in, in that sort of speculative manner, but that's not really how things operate in the UK. No, no, nor, nor, nor do they uh, here. The, the other source of tension, of course, is the, the, um, the gap between the rents or housing charges that co-ops um, uh, sustain themselves with today and the the rents being charged in the in the market uh, so in vancouver uh, just last month um, the inflationary effect on rents has produced uh, a market where a one-bedroom apartment is worth in, in the rental market is worth uh, just over three thousand dollars a month um, on on average which is just unsustainable it's about five times the affordability threshold for someone earning minimum wage in the in the bc market so the municipality looks at the housing charges being charged by co-ops now who've been operating essentially a not-for-profit housing business for four decades. And they're quite often 60% of the prevailing market rent in the surrounding area. So the conclusion that municipal governments draw from that is, well, look at the gap. Uh, that's revenue potential that can be applied to the price we charge for uh, a new term on the lease. And the co-ops are saying, well, but we've we've spent the last four decades uh, running a nonprofit housing business. Our rents are actually geared to the incomes of our members. Uh, so to try and capture the value of that gap between those rents and market rents would now uh, impoverish the, the co-op and most of the residents uh, in the co-op, and it's not a sustainable uh, deal. So um, it's, it's a discussion uh, still raging. We have a, a renewal framework uh, with the city of Vancouver for about 50 uh, co-op leases negotiating the business deal that gets now attached to that renewal framework is occupying uh, more of our time than than uh, makes me comfortable
I mean, again, it sounds as if you're operating in a very challenging narrative space. I mean, it, you, you know, um, again, if I give you the example of many of our members in in, in central London, their their rents will be maybe twenty percent of the prevailing market rent, and and indeed, we're now seeing a lot of market rental property in London disappearing out of the market, as as it's either taken into what's referred here as as buy to hold, where um, people seeking a, a, a safe place to store their wealth in in in, in certain um, uh, certain global cities London included are not actually you know purchasing property for rental yield they're purchasing them to sit on and 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 and, and, and see the capital uplift over time mm -hmm. but also the the ultra short-term let market the overnight market the um, I shan't name any companies here. Um, but the platforms that everybody is aware of, where one night and two night residential uh, property is now essentially being let as bed and breakfast or or or, or hotels almost, um, again is stripping a lot of, of of property out of the private sector, which is pushing those private sector rents even further up. And yet, people in the UK will look at the co-ops, but also the local authorities and the housing associations, whose rents are significantly below market, and and the co-ops will be the furthest below market uh, generally, as being a good thing, rather than something that is an opportunity to to, to price up what the co-ops essentially are paying for for for, for holding and occupying that that land. Um, now, that picture isn't the same in all parts of, of the UK. There are parts of the UK where actually um, prevailing co-op and other social housing rents are above market. And that's because there are certain parts of the UK where the housing market is so depressed that there isn't demand for the market housing because there's, there's more homes than there is population. We've had a lot of population shift in the UK. So that overheats places in the south of England in terms of the housing market, whereas places in parts of the north of England and the Midlands have seen have seen a lot of population shift and abandonment of housing. And there the co-op and, and, and other rents will, will, as I say, either be in parity with the market or even above the market. Um, but again, you know, these these things have seem to be viewed in a different way because of this sort of revaluation and and and, and renewal of term of lease issue that, that, that you're clearly grappling with in, in, in your setting. No, you're right. And, and the, there are parts of the country where uh, co-ops have been challenged. Um, to keep their their housing charges down so that they're competitive in in the market that surrounds them, but that's not ever been an issue in BC, and it's not likely to be given the um, the overheated housing market that we operate in. So I have a question about um, the the value of the property and and how that affects the lending. So like if a co-op is on on lease land, how like are they building equity at the same rate as if they were on freehold land? You know, because when they're looking at renewing their mortgage, they, you know, they have, you know, they're they're looking at their built equity. So how how is you know land, lease land versus freehold affecting their their equity? So we own and lease uh, property, um, and of course the big difference is on a leasehold interest, you're not building equity at all. Um, you're, you're just watching the value of the leasehold interest um, evaporate um, on your balance sheet. Um, on assets that we own, of course, we are uh, building equity and able to leverage that to, uh, to fund new developments and redevelopments within, within the portfolio. Um, but on a leasehold interest, the, the entire value of a leasehold arrangement, and, and you know, I, I, as I mentioned earlier, we are um, able to use leasehold arrangements with municipalities now uh, to build new homes that would otherwise be um, unattainable. Um, but that's, you, you crystallize the value at the front end by you know, borrowing against that leasehold interest, but as the lease um, runs its course, um, at the end of the day, you're obliged to return the land and the improvements on the land to, to the owner. So you realize no equity at all, mm -hmm. except maybe the political equity uh, that comes with having provided uh, homes uh, to people in a housing market that um, is not well served by uh, the private development industry because it simply doesn't return enough uh, profit to their balance sheets. 
and the situation for us here in the UK again is is, is different because where our co-ops are 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 operating on lease arrangements. They're 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 operating on these short-term operational leases. So none of the value is is accruing to them because the asset is sitting on the balance sheet of of of, of the 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 lease or rather than the leasee. Um, whereas our co-op, the majority of our co-ops being freehold owners, they are accruing all of the uplift in value of, of the real estate that they own. Um, we 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 have two two separate valuation models that are used by our, our freehold owning uh, co-ops. There is what's called valuation at cost, um, where essentially the properties are valued on the basis of what do they cost to develop it in the first place, or valuation by rolling revaluation. In other words, what are they worth now as, as, as an existing use valuation? But, but in both, both situations, were the co-op to to look to up, update its 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 assessment of value all of that uplift is is, is staying with the co-op um, but certainly as i say in, in in the lease example that we have here in the uk um the the, the uplift is all being benefited elsewhere yeah that's a very similar um situation here for uh, freehold co-ops the 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 problem uh or the I guess the challenge that faces the, I know that our, our topic today is leaseholdings, but I, I, I can't resist um, uh, engaging Blaze for a bit on, on the freehold uh, issue. The problem uh, is leveraging that value or that equity into new housing when, when the time comes. We have in, in Canada pretty much the most uh, disaggregated real estate asset base you could possibly imagine in the co-op housing sector. The average co-op uh in bc is is almost 60 homes much bigger in in central canada but you know 60 homes uh, is is wonderful uh for the kind of uh, close-knit diverse um supportive community that co-ops are are rightly uh, famous for in, in in canada but as a real estate asset base uh it's it's very difficult to uh, develop the capacity uh, to leverage that into new homes when the time for redevelopment comes along. So that's why the Community Land Trust has been so critical uh, in, in creating an engine for growth that was never built into the co-op housing sector 40 or 50 years ago when it began. Uh, but now we're able to, without merging co-ops, able to act as an aggregator uh, for that real estate asset base to develop and redevelop new homes. Um, and that's been late coming uh, to our sector. We've only been active in this area since... Um, you know, 2012, 13, 14, but um, it's for for me the promise of, of the future to address that that disaggregation. And and similar to yourselves, the historic development of, of, of housing co-ops in the UK was based upon you developing an individual scheme, mm -hmm. 30 homes, 50 homes, 70 homes, and that's a co-op. And that co-op holds its asset on its balance sheet, and then you develop a second and a third one and a fourth one and so you end up and our sector has 223 registered providers so government regulated and registered providers of social housing and each of them has their asset holding of 50 or so homes in the same way as yourself so we've got you know tens of thousands of homes but they're not there as a usable asset base they're they're scattered across all these different balance sheets. They're there as a usable asset base for each of those individual co-ops to, mm. to mortgage against to do improvement works to their housing, existing housing stock. But as yeah. a development model, it has the same limitations as, as you described in the Canadian example, where the Coin Street example that I gave earlier on um, is, is much more similar to the Community Land Trust model in that they're it's a large site that's been placed in trust. I mean, back in the 1980s, we didn't have the term community land trust. We had the term development trust. These days right. in the UK, we have the term community land trust. So these days they would have called Coin Street a community land trust in the 1980s. Right. They didn't. They gave it a different term. But it's the same idea that this very large site is, is, is held as an overall asset. Um, and then the, the residential elements are not hived off onto separate balance sheets they stay on the balance sheet of the trust which is essentially offering these short-term operational leases to the individual co-ops 
and 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 similar to your to to to, to yourselves the community land trust model in the uk is is now becoming something that's getting a lot more attention for exactly that 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 well among other reasons um that the asset can continue to be leveraged and used for future development rather than you place the asset um onto individual balance sheets and then it stays there and you try to do another development and another development and another development mm -hmm. yeah it's a very similar context here so tom have any co-ops joined the community land trust uh, so that they, you know, that, that they can, you know, basically offer their co-op as, as an asset uh, to, uh, you know, for the, for the greater good of building more, more co-ops? They have, um, not, not for the, the noble purpose that, that you just described, but um, primarily as a means of, of uh, addressing some difficulties that they may have found themselves in. So a co-op that's fallen into mortgage arrears with uh, Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, or has uh, difficulty funding its capital reserves or attracting new members, will uh, find it attractive to move the asset uh, into the land trust uh, and then uh, ask the community land trust to assume uh, the debt and the responsibility for managing the asset and, and you know, shepherding through a program of capital repairs. And that's proven to be uh, very successful. It, it gives um, comfort to lenders and investors who now see the asset management function being performed by a body that has the professional expertise to carry out uh, those tasks and the governance of the community uh, left in the hands of, of the, of the co-op members um, who, who are experts in, in community governance because that's what they've been doing for the last uh, four decades. Uh, and the mechanism that mediates that relationship is a lease. Uh, between the community land trust and the co-op, although not a lease registered on title, because that would attract a, another form of tax that we're anxious to avoid. And yeah, speaking of tax, what? Um, so, if you're on, if a co-op is on on leased land, are they paying property tax or not? Well, they they well the the, the community land trust uh, will pay municipal um, property tax uh, as a a lessee, a transfer of property uh, into a community land trust, unless uh, it's a, a charity, and we only have one of those um, because the that's another that's another conversation. Um, but a, a, the transfer of property into the community land trust on on a lease term that exceeds thirty years uh, will attract the full property transfer tax levied by the provincial government. So that's um, that's been an obstacle to closing the the equity gap. Uh, in in new developments where we expect land to be transferred into the trust, it's a an ongoing conversation with the provincial government around um, the impact the property transfer tax is having on downstream affordability. Mm -hmm. And and what about just annual property tax? If you're on lease land, or or are you paying the annual property tax? Like you know, outside yes. of the CLT, outside of this the CLT model. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, municipalities are, are um, they'll sometimes discount the municipal property tax for nonprofit or, or co-op housing, uh, but it, very rarely will they waive it or exempt um, housing developments from that. And, you know, frankly, I'm, I'm not, um, I've never been a big fan of advocating for total property tax uh, exemptions because it creates a a funny dynamic in the relationship between co-ops and municipalities. I mean, we are using municipal services um, to the same extent as other uh, private sector residential developments. I think it's fair where there's capacity, where it doesn't impact uh, affordability uh, for co-ops to, to kind of pay their fair share of what it takes to maintain a municipal service base. It's an interesting difference in, in, in what I suspect is the case in that you know, in the UK, it's the individual that's paying the annual property tax um, rather than the landlord. It's only where it's only where the cooperative is 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 housing people in what's called shared accommodation. In, in other words, where the person where the individual doesn't have a unique property that is theirs that they have a tenancy on, but they have essentially a room in a shared house. In that situation, which is referred to as a house of multiple occupation in the UK. 
there the cooperative would be responsible for paying the annual tax to, to the local authority for, for the services, um, what's referred to as council tax in the UK. Um, otherwise, all of all of the tenants of our co-ops that are not offering that type of accommodation, which is which is the rare form of accommodation, it's the individual who has to pay the tax themselves. Um, we do then have, um, you know, various um, uh, various benefit um, uh, entitlements that people can, can can look at in terms of mitigating that. It's only on the commercial space. So so if, for example, the cooperative has an office or um, uh, some other non-residential function, then it is paying business rates, as they're referred to, on that office and commercial space. But on the residential space, it's the individual that's that's meeting that cost. And and on the property transfer side of things, um, we have a stamp duty uh, um, uh, tax program here on, on 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 property transfers. There are different rates of stamp duty. Um, and and, and uh, you know we've done a lot of work recently to to get some uh, very um, significant exemptions for, um, uh, for 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 cooperatives in the UK relating to what's called the enhanced rate of stamp duty. Um, uh, but uh, but but again, um, uh, there's there's no sort of broad exemption from paying the the, the tax in the first place. There's 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 um, uh, but there is, you know, as I say now, this this uh, this exemption that was introduced in 2021 that that stops cooperatives that are financed in a certain way. In other words, financed with with private finance rather than public finance from being treated as if they're private sector landlords um, and, and taxed accordingly. Interesting. Yeah, the, here the the individual uh, co-op member has no um legal or contractual relationship with any level of government uh, that is all housed in the co-op or in the community land trust depending on who holds the the leasehold interest um, presumably you're passing that cost on as part of their service charge or part of what's calculated into their rent so they're paying for it in a different way they're paying it essentially as part of their overall charge and then the landlord is on paying that money which essentially is what happens in our shared our shared housing example here it will be an element of service charge or rent um, yes but but that certainly is the the norm the norm is that people have this individual relationship with uh, with local government which is different than what you have yeah no that shared ownership relationship that you described that's exactly how it works uh, uh, here so so you know, I would say that that our our experience with leases, where the lease is held by the individual co-op, has been very challenging. Uh, but where the lease is held by the community land trust, it has been nothing but an opportunity uh, to develop homes where they would otherwise not be able to be developed. And municipal governments uh, find it very attractive too, especially smaller uh, municipalities, because they quite often have land. Um, they, they've been taking a beating uh, in, in, in the press for what happens when they sell or give land to private developers because then, of course, that's really a transfer of wealth from the community to, uh, to the private sector. So instead of using community assets to build community wealth, they really pad the balance sheet of private sector developers. But when they can hold on to the land, enter into a long-term leasehold arrangement with the community land trust, and then see housing developed on that property that can tap into financing programs available either from provincial governments or the federal government then there's a win-win for municipalities who want to defend um, how they've de deployed public assets and and how they've they've allowed community wealth to to um, to grow and and the development capacity that now exists in the community housing sector and and the comfort level that investors and government um, uh, agencies have in in putting money into housing developments that they know won't be enriching individuals, but will be providing a long-term affordability in a community setting over over a very long period of time. So, it's a it's as I said earlier, it's a very funny um, relationship we have with the the leasehold concept. It's it's kind of the ticket to our uh, a lot of our current success in developing new uh, affordable homes, but a but a bit of a legacy. Uh, problem as we wrestle with uh, renewal of those leases at the back end and i can i, I can certainly see the applicability where with some of our existing freehold owning cooperatives here in the uk they might see the desirability of 
of, of, of essentially transferring their freehold in, into some sort of centralized trust um, and taking a, a short lease arrangement. Um, I think partly, I think there's two things that, that might drive that here in the UK over time. Firstly, is that many of the people living in and, and, and managing our individual cooperatives, um, you know, 40 years down the line from being uh, the people who created these co-ops and housed themselves essentially as 20-somethings are uh, not 20-somethings um, any longer. And in, indeed, a number of them are looking at their properties and saying, well, actually, as we age, these properties are not fit for purpose for us. Um, and can we release some of the value in these properties and create some new schemes for ourselves somewhere else that are probably adapted and meet our needs? And then and then those properties come into into a trust, can be recycled, relet, et cetera, et cetera. But also there are a number of uh, new regulatory and statutory obligations that are coming in in the UK relating to fire safety and, and health and safety more broadly that, that are causing a, a degree of concern not just in in co-ops but in small social landlords generally in the UK that are that are governed by uh, boards of, uh, of, of of local people or volunteers that, that are suddenly looking at these um, strengthened legal responsibilities and saying well that doesn't really look like the deal we signed up for 40 years ago when things were a lot more relaxed and and loose around regulation and again the ability for them to transfer some of that legal risk and liability, to, to a larger body whilst remaining in their properties and having that local governance and control, I think is something that has the, the potential to become more attractive to some of our members here in the UK. And then you have the opportunity to start drawing some of the asset that's currently scattered across all these different balance sheets into somewhere more central where, it, where it's more usable. Yeah, that, that's a perfect description of the dynamic that's, um, that's unfolding here because, you know, the co-ops, have very successfully promoted the concept of security of tenure and, and being able to serve uh, people at, at every stage of their life cycle and their earning potential and their family size and, and composition. The challenge, of course, being that, that people's needs uh, change quite dramatically over time and the built form is extremely static, as, as we know. Uh, so a lot of those uh, co-ops that were built um, you know, to look like homes that people would own uh, in the in the early 80s with lots of stairs and, and uh, you know, a, a driveway and a, in some case a front lawn um, and young families moved into them. Well, you know, on your second hip replacement, those stairs aren't so much fun uh, in, anymore and, and family sizes have uh, have gotten smaller. Uh, but again, the bill form is exactly the way it was in 1981. So um, so those volunteer governors um, who were so enthusiastic about shaping those communities and, and breathing life into them uh, are understandably a little tired and, and wondering now how to move past the uh, the impasse that they've, they're they experiencing between their personal situation and that static uh, built form and understanding that they're not real estate developers and, and the, the capacity to to move to the next generation of what that uh, the co-op might look like is is very limited unless they can source a relationship with the community land trust and and then partner uh, with us to to make that happen so that's what we're experiencing now i think it will be the story of the next couple of decades of housing development uh, here in, in bc and we hope across uh, canada and it it will be um a welcome change from from the decades that we've spent wondering um, what was going to happen to us, instead of being able to shape uh, the future that that we're going to live uh, down downstream. Yes, and I think that point about the the, the built assets absolutely right. Many of our many of our members that developed in the 1980s were were young single people, and creating property for young single people. Um, yeah. Which again, as you say, you take a you take a street property and convert it into three flats. If you've got the ground floor flat, then mm -hmm. you don't have the issues of getting up the two or three story flights of fairly steep stairs up to the top floor flat. Um, but there are many that do, and and the cost of converting those properties um, is is restrictive. It also potentially means a loss of units. Um, as you you know you create small uh, less larger units that are that are adapted and and accessible with vertical access lifts for example mm -hmm. um, 
that's a very restrictive cost. And and the other the other thing that's a challenge for many of our members here related to those sorts of things is is that when those co-ops were developed, we had a completely different financing model in play. Yeah. You know, back then we had virtually full grants provided by um, the, the the national government for for development. Mm -hmm that's long gone and and if you know you're talking about development grants now being around about 20 percent of cost and the the 80 percent having to come from commercial debt so again those members that did those developments 40 years ago 30 years ago they didn't do them in the in the financial environment they'd have to deal with now and 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 the difference between applying for a grant and having to go and and and, and raise commercial debt from a lender um is it's a different deal um and not one that, that they have the, the exposure to and it creates quite a lot of frustration uh, within the co-op communities because those members who were um there from day one uh often have difficulty understanding why the same uh exercise can't just be replicated but as you say the financing environment is uh, completely different there it's not program based anymore it's deal based and and they're not experts in in making real estate deals and it's it's we shouldn't underestimate either that this what I would call the psychological barrier in moving from a freehold relationship to a leasehold relationship. There's a perception that in transferring the assets into the community land trust and entering into a leasehold arrangement that you're giving up um, value and, and giving up uh, control. Um, What's often lost in that conversation is that the legislation under which the co-ops are incorporated uh, severely restricts what can be done with that asset uh, downstream. It can't be liquidated and, and the proceeds can't be distributed among the members because that's prohibited under the legislation. So really owning a piece of property uh, just gives you the right to go into debt uh, to maintain it over time. And it's usually easier for the community land trust to assume that debt and, and the insurance uh, responsibility and the asset management responsibility than to have it uh, reside in the individual co-op community. Well, that uh, sounds like a, a good way to wrap up our, our conversation. Um, there's, uh, there, there's a lot to, to unpack and, uh, and I think we, we've done a pretty good job of, uh, of touching on, on most of the the pros and the cons of of land leases and uh and it sounds like uh well i mean it definitely is a, a benefit uh to to have you know this emerging community land trust model as a as a solution to uh to you know the the reality of facing land lease renewals and uh and mortgage renewals and uh and capital upgrades and uh and aging <laughs> aging in place uh so um well maybe the next podcast will be on uh, the community land trust model and, and its benefits been a real pleasure blaze to, uh, to to meet you and to learn uh from you around the you know the similarities and the differences uh, between our our two environments so i've uh, really enjoyed that opportunity and, and likewise you know um great to make yourself and it's i i always enjoy learning from what what works and, and what people um, are dealing with in in in, in other parts of uh, the, the movement internationally. I mean, it's one of the the things that I personally feel I've benefited from a lot from from being involved in cooperative housing international is is that learning from what other people do in in other countries. Which you know, when you're operating in your own environment, you you, you know you the 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 ability to, to to be aware of what is going on in other countries is it's it's not your day to day it's not what you're doing day to day as, as you do your job and you work in the realities that you're working in so so again um, I, I always enjoy you know learning um, uh, what, what what's going on in other countries and what people are doing that that's effective and works and you know we mentioned earlier on um, uh, uh, the trip that my um, uh, former head of policy Nick Blister undertake and, and again he came back you know having learned a, a lot of, of, of new things from what you're doing there in, in applying the community land trust model um, in Canada and um, and uh, it's it's always good to, uh, uh, to to discover new ways of doing things so to say.
Thank you for listening to this latest episode of Co-op Conversations. We hope that it provided a better understanding of what life is like in a housing co-op. If you're interested in finding out more, you can visit us at housinginternational.coop. We feature many stories and resources on our website with useful tools, studies, and articles on topics ranging from governance to finance to sustainability and so on. You can also find us on social media, on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, where we like to share stories and good practices of co-op housing around the world. If you want to find a housing co-op in your region, I suggest that you do an online search for co-op housing along with the name of your city and hopefully something will come up. I would like to thank all of our guests for sharing their stories with us. Thanks for listening.